0: Good evening everyone how are you good someone said fantastic that's good good amazing i'm i'm actually feeling sick I might throw up i just wanna be i just wanna be so open and honest with you. I might barf at some point during the sermon. Or I might just say, hey, band, I'd like you to come up just for about five minutes. I'm going to need them to be on it, or you to solo, Justin, or something like that. Just come up and John Mayer it while I head to the back to the porcelain throne. What's that? What's that? That's true. Let's be honest. That's true. What's that? Yeah. Um, Let's start with getting some Bibles in your hand. Who needs a Bible? If you need a Bible, just put your hands up. Uh, One of these servants would love to get one in your hands. You you want a Bible, you want to be reading along so that you know I'm not making this stuff up. Just put your hand up. Get Bibles in your hands. How many of you are college students and you're headed home like this week or next week? Oh, he smokes. Cool. This would be me, Zach, and four people next week. So, congrats, you've sort of made it to the end of the semester. Who has finals this coming week? Is that Channel Islands? Yeah. And then I think CLU is week after. Week after, right? What about Moorpark? When are you, you guys Moore Park, Do you guys have finals? Start on the 10th. They start finals on Friday? Yeah. Man, they hate people over there. That's crazy. That's crazy. Start on a Friday. Just kick off your weekend. That's brutal. All right, cool. Well, it's going to be Christmas soon, and it's going to be 2016. We haven't really talked about next year. Zach and I, like three Mondays ago, planned out all of next year's sermons, and next year, unfortunately for all of us, is going to be huge. It's going to be, we're going to be going through huge books, like entire books, like books that pastors go their whole careers and never teach through, um, we're going to be going through some just some awesome series, and Zach and I just sat down and we didn't come with any notes or any pet projects that we wanted to do. We just prayed and discussed and, and things surfaced, and so we're pretty excited about about next year, um, and we're excited for the rest of this year too, but um, we've got a, a big a big plate next year, and so um, yeah, so get ready for that. Get stoked on that. Um, tonight we're going to be finishing up our series called Faith and Failure. If, when you have your Bible, open up to John chapter twenty-one. John chapter twenty-one, and I'm going to pray mostly that I don't throw up. So, Jesus, just as we uh, as we wrap this up, just pray that. Uh, that this study would be first and foremost about you, that our reaction would be first and foremost for you, um, that the follow-through, that the, that the calling on our lives would not be the calling from a pastor, but it would be a calling from you, from heaven. And so, Jesus, just be high and lifted up as we wrap this up for, for the way in which you deal so tenderly and graciously with us amidst our failure. Would you just tenderly and graciously call your children tonight. I know and I trust that you will. Holy Spirit, I I pray specifically that you would move amongst your people in this place. Jesus is your high and seated on that throne. He said, it's better that you go so that you may send the Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, we're excited that you're here. We're excited that you authored Scripture, that you interpret Scripture, that you write it on our hearts and you cause us to walk in your statutes. And so I just pray that, as always, that tonight would be only, solely, entirely about you. And so Jesus, be glorified in this time as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And so we're wrapping up this series called Faith and Failure. If you haven't been here, I'll recap the last couple of weeks. What we're endeavoring to do is take a look at this, this guy by the name of Peter, Simon Peter, who's arguably been the, the, the central character in some of the biggest missteps, perhaps, in the New Testament. It's some of these these epic scenes that we've heard since early Sunday school. If you've grown up in the church, you've just heard about these scenes over and over, and the Apostle Peter, and and I've been just kind of, as I was preparing for tonight, I just kind of, I don't really have this in my notes or any formula for how to dissect this, but I've just been kind of thinking about the ways in which that we deal with failure on a human level. And so the ways that you know your 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 parents dealt with your failure, in 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 the right a lot of times and in the wrong, you know whether it was punitive, whether it was restorative. I think about the ways that we fail at our jobs, that we fail as as students in the classroom. And the way that our failures have repercussions and the responses to our failure. Again, they can be good responses, proper responses, and they can be wrong responses. But the responses, and we see the ramifications of our failure all around us. We see that a lot of times failures end relationships. They they cause strife. They bring division. Um, they They separate us from people. They separate us from relationships. They pull us from community. They pull us from places that God wants us to be at times because in the flesh, humans deal with with failure so drastically sometimes. And tonight, as we conclude, we're gonna see how Jesus ultimately, ultimately responds to our failure. And here's my job. We're gonna get to the end of this and it's gonna seem really simple, to be honest. My job as a preacher is to bring you nothing more to the scene than Jesus brought to the scene. I'm not gonna try to make something bigger out of this because as we studied in the last series, a lot of times we try to overcomplicate our faith and we're called to be just enamored with the simplicity of Christ. And even in the response to our failures, some of us today will say like, I, I kind of wanted like more, like I want a like list of things I need to do now, right? Like you can kind of start to feel like your inner legalist gets stirred up. Okay, I've, I'm a failure. Now just give me the list of things I need to do to not be a failure. Right? Like, give me the list of things that I need to do to fix the failures that Jesus wants me to do. I've, I get it. You've been saying it for weeks. I get it. I'm a failure. So, like, what's the list of things I need to do now? And Jesus doesn't have that list as much as I like lists. I love lists. He doesn't have it. He has a question and he has a call. He has a question and a call. And I would challenge us tonight to see how gently and how graciously Jesus deals with Peter's failure, and to ask the Holy Spirit that he would remind us every single time we fail that Jesus's question and his call is the same to us. And so, as we launched into this series in week one, we, we first kind of took a look at two scenes real quick. One is Peter out fishing with the disciples, and, and Jesus... Tells them to cast the net, to let down the net. And he said, What did he say? He kind of said, like, well, you know, Jesus, we've we've done this before. Right? And we've done that in our own lives. We, we hear the pastor say, look, get into the Bible, get into prayer, get into fellowship. You're like, well, I've kind of I've heard that before. And we kind of begrudgingly just go, oh, I'll try reading tonight. Because a lot of times we don't we don't trust. What Jesus says. We don't trust that His ways are higher than our ways, that He knows more, that He wants to give us a life and a life more abundant. We think Jesus just comes with a set of rules and regulations. And so when Jesus asks me to do something, I just sort of have to, if you love me, you'll obey me. Okay, I'm just going to obey you. Okay. And we miss it that Jesus' call on our life and what happened when they let down the net, they had so much fish so much fish but the disciples in that moment said look all right all right we'll do it we'll do it we, i don't really trust jesus i don't really trust what you say that it's for my best like if we if we if we sat before jesus as all-knowing creator god and he asked us to do something shouldn't we wouldn't we want to just do it immediately knowing that'll it turn out for our good we don't really do we sin in our own life jesus says that that leads to death i'm like well yeah, yeah. and he says look let down your net Peter said, okay, fine, we'll do it. So sometimes we fail in our faith by not trusting what Jesus says. The second picture that we saw in week one was on the walking on the water. Jesus sends the disciples, fishermen out into a boat and he heads up a mountain to pray and they get hit with a storm and Jesus comes skating in on the water and they think they're gonna die again. But Peter, what does Peter do? Tell me to come out. I'm coming out, right? And Peter was a fisherman. He knew the waters, but he was scared. He was a roughneck. He was a blue collar worker. He worked with fish guts and nets all day. Hands were calloused. Probably a pretty strong guy, a burly guy to be a fisherman, to be pulling in nets. It didn't have, like reels. It wasn't cute back then. It wasn't like deep sea fishing, right? This was gnarly. This was pulling. This is a burly guy, kind of a roughneck, blue collar. He says, Jesus, I'll come out there. Just tell me to come out there. Jesus says, come on out. And Peter steps out in faith, a bold move of faith, and he's walking on the water. He's performing a miracle with Jesus. He's part of Jesus' miracle. Jesus says, these guys will come. They'll do even greater things than I have done. And Peter's doing something amazing, but then he takes his eyes off Jesus, doesn't he? The waves were never a threat to Peter. The storm was never a threat to Peter taking his eyes off Jesus in the midst of a trial was what threatened Peter. And so we see that one of the ways that we failed in our faith is that we take our eyes off Jesus in a, in a, in a trial. Some of you right now, are in a tra- you're in a trial. You're in a time of turbulence. Some of you call that finals week, okay? You're in a trial. And the inclination is to say, okay, hold on, Jesus, I've got to focus on this. It doesn't mean that you don't ever take a, it doesn't mean that you don't deal with the trials in your life. The application is that you keep your eyes on Jesus through the trials in your life. Are you pulling away from your devotion? Are you pulling away from prayer? Are you pulling away from church? Are you pulling away from discipleship and community in the times of your trial? Are you taking your eyes off Jesus in the times of your trial? That's when you begin to sink. And then we saw Peter cry out in an instant. He said, Jesus, save me. And it says, immediately, Jesus gripped him. Jesus takes no pleasure in watching anyone sink. No pleasure. So sometimes we fail in our faith by taking our eyes off Jesus amid trials In week two, we see, that Jesus, or we see that Peter has a bold proclamation of, of Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. He says, look, you are the Messiah, and the Messiah himself is God. An amazing profession. You could arguably say this is the first christian in this moment this was the first christian when he said you are the messiah and the messiah is god son of the living god and then jesus predicts his death and what does peter do He says, hey jesus come here, come on, come here. hold on guys we'll be there like, hey jesus don't be going around saying that stuff hey these guys are gonna get a little shaky right you can't be saying what is what does he do he rebukes jesus See, look, somebody talking about this. This is surely this isn't gonna happen to you. Peter should have known his Bible. Look, he can't say this, he can't say this. And what does Jesus say? Right? Well, come on, we all know this. Get behind me, Satan. Right? That's like the most gangster rebuke ever, right? Get behind me, Satan. But he tells him why he was saying that, why he was so harsh. He says, because you've got your eyes on the things of the world, not of the things of God, right? Jesus' ways are higher. He says, look, Jesus, you can't, this is, surely this can't happen. And Jesus stops him and he says, get behind me. All the things of the world that you put up front, you've got to put behind me. I'm up front first and foremost. And so we saw that one of the ways that we fail in our faith is by not trusting or we forget that God is in control. We forget that God is in control, that this is his story as we've seen. And last week, we saw in the Garden of the Prayer, the Garden of Prayer, the Garden of Gethsemane, actually in week two, when he rebuked, I've got we fail in our faith when we set our minds to the things of the world rather than the things of God, which bled into last week as well, where we saw Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane approaching the crucifixion, approaching really ultimately the wrath of God, right? That's what Jesus faced on the cross. Jesus was facing the wrath of God. That's why he didn't pray, Lord, take this crown of thorns from me in the garden. He didn't say, Lord, take this beating from me. He didn't say, Lord, take this mockery and spitting from me. He didn't even say, Lord, take this crucifixion from me. He said, take this cup. And the whole Bible paints this cup as the cup of God's wrath. All the anger, all the fury of God pent up about to be poured out on Jesus on the cross, and, I, and that's what saves us from our sins. You need to know, as I said last week, Jesus physically dying on the cross isn't what saved you from your sins. It was the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus on the cross that saves you from your sins. Men had been crucified before, men would be crucified again. What happened on the cross was the unleashing of all God's wrath, all his fury on Jesus, who in that moment became your sin. And God has every right to be angry with sin. So you're like, I don't want to talk about this God of wrath. The Bible speaks of his wrath and his fury and his anger more than his love. Why? Because you can't understand his love until you understand the severity of his wrath. And so on the cross, God poured out the entirety of his wrath. That's why a lot of you, you think like the Old Testament is really kind of bloody and mean, right? You notice that? And like your non-Christian friends like just bang on it. And you're sort of like, let's just not, let's not talk about the Old Testament. Let's just kind of stick to Kumbaya, Jesus. Right? I like when he came as a hippie, that was a lot better. You know, like campfires and children and lambs and stuff, right? We're sort of like, let's stick to the nice side of God. What we don't realize what happened after the crucifixion is that God's wrath, his anger, which you saw poured out actively in the Old Testament, right? Jesus, God just showed up and killed people, didn't he? And then he poured out all his wrath, all his wrath on Jesus. And notice ever since, it's like he's been satisfied. So I don't know why God doesn't interact with us the way he did in the Old Testament. It's because all his anger was satisfied on the cross. And we're not going to see it again until it says in Revelation, Jesus comes back to pour out. And it says he comes to tread the winepress of the wrath and the fury of the Almighty God. So Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. And when he comes back in the end times, he is the one that gets to pour it back out. God the Father is satisfied. He's no longer angry. It's been poured out on Jesus And so we saw last week, as, as Jesus prayed in the garden, "Lord, take this cup from me, take this wrath from me. If there's any other way, I'll just go with that. If there's a plan B, let's evoke it now." And then he said, "But not my will. Thy will." And then a mob came, and Judas betrayed him with a kiss. And then Peter, what did he do? Pulled out his concealed weapon, didn't he? Right? Pulled out his sword. I'll defend you. Now, Peter wouldn't pray for an hour as Jesus asked him to in the garden, but he was willing to go to war for Jesus in front of a mob. A lot of us, myself included, would rather fight for Jesus than pray with him. We'll take out our sword for Jesus. I'll debate anyone on this campus. Give me an issue, I'm going to slaughter you. i got the Bible verses to back it up. And Jesus says, why don't you just pray for an hour? Well, I won't do anything. And so Peter wants to go to war against this mob for Jesus. And Jesus again, just to Peter, he puts his ear back on. Right? And he tells Peter, he says, Peter, this has to happen. Why did he say he said it twice? What was the reason it had to happen? Because Jesus wanted it to? He said that the scriptures might be fulfilled, right? And we took a look at the fact that all of the Old Testament was pointing to this. And so Peter had forgotten in that moment. He says, what? I could bring down 12 legions, more than 12 legions. I could pray to God right now and he'll send more than 12 legions, which could destroy, we did the numbers last week, you should have been here, billions of people in one night. 12 legions of angels could destroy billions of soldiers in one night. Jesus is like, I could call on them if I wanted to. But this must happen that the scriptures be fulfilled. See, God's story is his story. And the best part about it is that our failures don't stop it. Our failures don't derail the gospel. And Jesus is there restoring ears. But he's reminding us that he's in control. And that we've got our eyes set on earthly things. And so again, one of the ways that we fail in our faith is by not trusting or by forgetting that God is in control. And at this point, Jesus is now headed to the cross, as we ended last week. He's headed to the cross to face the wrath of God. Peter goes on to deny Jesus and he weeps bitterly. We see that in Matthew 26, 69 through 75. Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, hangs himself. We see that in Matthew 27, 3 through 10. Jesus is crucified. His body Pummeled, destroyed. The Bible says he made him who knew no sin to be sin. Not to be a picture of your sin, not to be a metaphor for your sin, to actually be sin. So on the cross, Jesus became your sin. God crushed Jesus, therefore crushing your sin. Past, present, and future. He put him into the ground, but the grave was made for sinners, and so it could not hold Jesus. And so after three days, Jesus resurrected now there's an empty tomb mary magdalene ran after witnessing the empty tomb she ran to peter and another disciple and told him of it peter and this other disciple run to the tomb the other guy is actually faster than peter he gets there first they both arrive but peter goes in first into the tomb he needs to see it for himself it's an empty tomb And they're shocked. It says this in John 20, verse 9. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. And a bit later we see that Jesus appears to Mary, and she thought he was a gardener. Some of you don't think the Bible's funny. You need to study more. It's quite hilarious, actually. And there's a really bad Jesus-Jesus joke in there, but I'm not going to tell it, okay? Okay. I'll leave that to Pastor Rob. (laughs) We see that the apostles are then commissioned by Jesus himself. We see Thomas doubts. Some of you doubt and Jesus comes up and says, look, my scars. And by the way, he's in a glorified body in this moment. Jesus has risen from the dead. He gets a glorified body that still has physicality to it. The one he still has today in heaven. We're promised the same and it still bears the marks of the crucifixion. When heaven opens up and they see people in heaven, they're able to identify why. Because they remain in some way, shape, or form uh, an image of what they were on earth. And so Jesus has has a glorified physical body, though he looks quite different, quite possibly because of the beating he took on the cross that they didn't even recognize him. Mary thought it was the gardener. And Jesus is now appearing he appears to Thomas and Thomas says, I'm not gonna believe it till I put my hands in his hand, or till I put my fingers in his hands and in his side. And Jesus says, Here, still bearing the scars of the crucifixion. And so Thomas believes. And we come to John 21, where we are now. I'm just gonna read for a while if that's cool with you. Starting with John 21, we're just gonna set the scene for Jesus' restoration amid. All the crazy failures of the Apostle Peter. It says after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples on the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, "I'm going fishing. I love Peter. So I'm going fishing." It was what he knew. It's very likely a return to the things that he knew because after all this craziness, the Messiah has been crucified. We're seeing him, but we're not sure what's coming after this. He says, I'm going to return to what I know. And amid our failures, a lot of times we do the same thing. I'm just going to return to the ways that I once knew because those are comfortable. No new calling. I failed. Look, this ministry probably isn't going forward. Look, my Christian life probably isn't going to bear any fruit. I'm just going to go back to what I was doing before. I'm going to go back to fishing. Peter said, I'm going fishing. They said, we're going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Verse 4, but when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was him, even though he had appeared to them already. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? Now, if anyone knows any fishermen in your life, you know this is a bad question. It's a great question, but fishermen hate the fact that they haven't caught anything. They hate I'm from Minnesota, okay? Land of four billion lakes, okay? Fishing is like a way of life. You don't, look, even if the Vikings lose, you don't ask a guy if he comes back with no fish. Did you have any fruit in your life? No. That's what he's asking him. It's a great question. It's the worst question for a fisherman to hear. But it's the best question for Jesus to ask. He says, Is life apart from me producing any fruit? The answer is no. Verse 6, and he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat. Some people freak out on this. What does the right side mean? Does that mean the, the political spectrum, the, the, the ideological spectrum, the this, that, and the other? It doesn't matter. This is a picture of. Obedience to God and life outside of his will. That's it. Don't overthink it. Don't freak out. What's the significance of the right? I don't know, because he had to pick a side. Relax. (laughs) Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Does this sound like a scene we've heard before? You think Jesus isn't, like, clever. Like, he's sitting on the shore, he's like, hmm, I know. (laughs) Right? Like, Remember how this thing, all kicked off, Peter, <laughs> right? He circles back. Jesus will come full circle in your face, sometimes teaching you the same lesson again. Why? Well, because you're going to continue to not trust what he says. All of us, myself included. By the way, when I say you, I mean us. Says, so, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Jesus again saying, I've come to give you a life and a life more abundant. Trust what I say. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, and some of you are curious who that is. There's lots of theories. None of them are concrete. Okay? Okay? So don't worry about that. It's one of the other disciples whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was Jesus, he put on his outer garment, which isn't smart. If you're jumping into the water for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. You got to love Peter. They weren't even that far. He's like, I'm in the water again. Let's do this. Right? Does that not, do you not identify with that? Right? Who who identifies with that? Like you're coming, maybe, maybe not, after one of my sermons, but like after Zach's sermon, you're just like, "Yes, I'm getting in the water. Let's go!" And then Monday, and you're like, "Uh." <laughs> right? You get so amped. You get that that church camp high, don't you? You get that Sunday high, right? And then Monday destroys it, just kills it. For us in the working world, it's called email. Monday morning email. See, all the working people get it. it College students are like, "What? I love email. It's where my friends get a hold of me." Right, All the college students, it's your first class. Oh, Monday exists, right? We get so excited, we just jump right in, right? We just get right in the water. That's what I love about Peter. You've got to identify with him. You might not be able to identify with a ton of people in the Bible, but if you can identify with someone, if I can identify with someone, it's Peter. I'm on it. Let's do this. I'm on mission. Let's get wet. Throwing on your jacket, getting in the water. Right? But the other disciples came in a little boat, for they were not far from land, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right? I imagine like shores, like at the, he just jumps in, they're like at the door, they're like, they're like going past him, like, how's it going, Peter? (laughs) Do you want us to wait for you, or? Like 10 feet, buddy. (laughs) He's just, all right. And they're dragging in all these fish. The other disciples came in a little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they came to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. Lots of theories on what that number means. I think the most interesting one is actually that the numerical value of the Greek words Peter and fish equals 153. And there's a lot. Does it mean anything? Not really, but it's just kind of fun to play around with. Some people, some, there's something about like the, the, the nations and that it actually symbolizes all of, all of the earth and all the people from all the different lands and lots of different stuff. Just suffice it to say there were a bunch of big fish. Got it? But What does that mean? It means there was a bunch of big fish. And it says, and also, and although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them. And likewise, the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Some of you get so discouraged that you fail in your faith. You're like, I've I've encountered Jesus. There was church camp, there was that one sermon, there was that one testimony, there was that one worship night, and I'm still failing. These guys were meeting Jesus face to face and still struggling with failure in their faith. Verse 15 So when they had eaten breakfast Jesus said to Simon Peter Simon son of Jonah do you love me more than these now when he says more than these he wasn't saying do you love me more than disciples in a sense that do you love me above them what he's saying is do you love me more than they love me cuz keep in mind Peter was nothing if not a boastful guy had he not earlier said look everyone look if everyone stumbles Jesus don't worry i won't stumble didn't he no way, not me, I'm a rock, it's what my name means, right? True story. <laughs> I'm going to be a rock for Jesus. And Jesus is going to start to stir in him. Now he said, look, do you, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, then feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Then tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. He had to have be grieved. Jesus had already asked him twice. And he responded in the affirm, what more does he want? See, Jesus in this moment is putting his finger on a very tender wound. He's putting his finger on a very tender wound, which he's not afraid to do with you either. You see, in the hour of Jesus' greatest anguish, Peter had denied him as Jesus had predicted. Immediately after Peter said this in John 13 37, he said, I will lay down my life for your sake. Who all said that when you got converted? Who all said that when you became a Christian? I'm going to lay down my anything. And he's like, how about this? Like, I don't know about that, actually. I was sort of on a camp high back then. and I didn't think it was going to I thought Christian life was going to be pretty cool. It's actually pretty miserable at times. So Peter says, I will lay down my life for your sake. And yet he wouldn't even stand for Jesus in front of a servant girl. I'm supposed to be a rock for Jesus. He probably imagined himself standing next to Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin. He is who he says he is. You have no right to do this. And he was nowhere to be found. And a servant girl came up and said, don't you follow Jesus? He said, Nami. me. Three times. He denied him. He couldn't even stand for Jesus in front of a servant girl. Jesus Peter thought he was supposed to be a rock, yet he'd crumbled. Some of us think we have to be a rock for Jesus. Some of us think we're strong enough to be a rock for the church, for our community, for our family, for our friends. And time and time again, our failures show us that we crumble amidst the pressure. So Peter denied Jesus. And he says this, so now he's going to appeal to Jesus' omniscience that Jesus knows everything. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know all things. You know that I love you. You know that I love you. What I believe he didn't realize in this moment is that Peter was given three opportunities to restore the three times that he denied him. Jesus turned shame and humiliation into professions of love and dedication. He denied him once. He said, Do you love me? He says, I do. He denied him again. Jesus said, Do you love me? He said, I do. He denied him a third time. And Jesus said, Do you love me? said you know i do jesus takes failure and he uses them to restore people he's there to meet you every single time it happens and his question is this do you love me see the world would say what did you do why did you do it do you know what's gonna happen Do you know you shouldn't have? Do you know you should not have done? Do you know that you should have instead of? That's how the world responds, do we not? Peter drags in all this failure, the most humiliating failure, denying the one he loved in front of a little girl, and all Jesus wants to know is, do you love me? And I would challenge you, the next time you're confronted with your sin, to hear the voice of Jesus by the Holy Spirit himself, just simply say, do you love me? Jesus isn't there saying, stop watching porn. He's there stop gossiping. Stop being angry. Stop coveting. Stop looking at her that way. Stop looking at him that way. Stop acting like that. Stop doing this. Start doing that. Jesus tonight very simply and yet very graciously just says, do you love me? He responds to our failure with a question. Do you love me? Because he knows that gets right to the core of it. Right to the heart, right to the root. He's not dealing with the branches. Waving in the wind. He wants to get right down to the roots. Do you love me? So Jesus gives him three times to profess his love. Restoring the failures in his faith. Jesus is turning shame and denial into professions of salvation and love. And he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. Right? And we've all done that. Some of you are there right now, tonight. In 10 years, you're going to look back at now and say, man, I just walked however I wanted to. The key is to not wait 10 years to figure that out. So you're walking right now the way that you want to, and it feels right. Why? Because the Bible says your heart is wicked. And it feels right. I think it's Romans 6.20 that says, those who are slaves to sin are completely justified in their righteousness. Why? Because you set your own righteousness. Some of you right now are younger. Some of you even matured in faith have reverted back to that younger mentality in your life with issues that have come up, with with family, with strife, with community, with faith. You've reverted back to your younger days where it's just, I'm walking the way I want to. I am God. Jesus says, you walked where you wished, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another Will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to them, Follow me. Follow me. Jesus' question in response to your failure is Do you love me? It's not Do you know what you did wrong? That deals with the symptoms. It's not, do you know what you should have done? It deals with the symptoms. It says, do you love me? That cuts to the heart. So for the failures that you've come out of, for the failure that you're currently in, for the failures you're going to head into, Jesus just very clearly, compassionately, gently and graciously says, do you love me? And then his call is to follow him. Now, I want to juxtapose real fast the fact that Satan loves failure. He loves failure. He loves it because it gives him ammunition to take you off the battlefield. Does it not? Amid your failure, Satan says, Look what you've done, you're not worthy. Does he not? Does he not whisper that into your ear? First of all, he tempts you. He lies to you. He swoons you. And then he condemns you. He says, look what you've done. You're not worthy. And Jesus says, look what I've done. I am worthy. Follow me. Do you love me? Then follow me. Jesus is the great restorer of failures. The great restorer of failures. Satan wishes to use your failure as ammunition for your destruction. Jesus uses failure for restoration and reconstruction. Say that again. Satan wishes to use your failures as ammunition for your destruction. Jesus uses your failure, as he did with Peter, for restoration and reconstruction. He specializes in turning failures into rocks of strength for his church, as we'll see in a second. And so he reaches out with a question tonight. Do you love me? And You don't have to answer that in front of me, because I know how you'll answer in front of me. You have to answer that in front of him. I can't be the arbiter of that relationship. I can't be the arbiter of that answer. I can't be the arbiter of that response. But to those failures that we've brought here tonight, Jesus simply, graciously, and lovingly says, Do you love me? And in your heart before him, if you say, You know that I do. He says, Then follow me. Notice he doesn't focus on the failure. That's something for the past, forgetting what has left behind. Some of us dwell in that. We don't get over it. And Jesus says, follow me. We want to sit there and talk about it. And it's great to counsel. And it's great to be held accountable. And it's great to confess. But Jesus says, we're going somewhere. Do you love me? You know I do. Then follow me. And what he's doing is he's turning Peter from this miserable, loving failure into a bulwark of strength for the church. Because now Peter has been stripped of everything. All his pride, all his boasting, he's been emptied through these years of ministry with Jesus. He knows full well he's not worthy and that Satan is right. Do you know that? Sometimes we just think Satan is wrong all the time. Actually, a lot of times he's right. You're not worthy. I know. Jesus is worthy. You're a failure. I know but Jesus will never fail in my faith. You've done this. You're a sinner. I know you're not perfect. I know. That's why I worship the one who is. Satan is very often right, but he's so wrong because he doesn't see how Jesus is morphing failures into living stones for his kingdom to be built upon. As we've talked about. We are not the cornerstone, Jesus is, but he says we're being set up now as living stones. And if you want to get crazy with me, because it's a Bible study, flip over like two pages to Acts 1. Like when the Bible was originally written, there was no chapters, there was no like breaks, there wasn't the the summary with a cute little map or anything like that. This was the next page. This was the next page. Do you love me? He's denied him. Follow me. And they're headed right to Jesus' ascension. Jesus is about to take off like a balloon before they were balloons. And Jesus is headed back and he says this. It's crazy. It's outrageous. He says, it's better for you that I go. So I was like, no, stay. Wouldn't you be too? No, no, no. I'm staying with the guy that heals people and walks on water. I want to learn how to do that. He says, no, 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 no. It's better for you that I go. He says today, look, for the American church, for God speak right now, where you are. He says, look, it's better for you that I leave. They've done the math. If Jesus was still here, everyone on earth would get less than half a second with him. Jesus says, it's better for you that I go. Because if I don't go, how will I send the Holy Spirit? And we see that the father sends the son and the son sends the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit glorifies the Son, and the Son came to do the will of the Father. It heads right back down and right back up. And so now, what we're going to take a look at is, is this day of Pentecost, real briefly, where the Holy Spirit descends upon the church, and there's, there's this, this absolutely epic preacher on the scene who just shortly before this wouldn't even stand for Jesus in front of a 12-year-old girl. Chapter 2 says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come and they were all in one accord in one place, the church churches rising and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues and the Spirit gave them utterance. And there was a dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. By the way, the church is for every nation, not just Israel anymore. No longer defined by your ethnicity. No longer defined by your race, your creed, your parents' religion, your skin color, your age, your Sunday school attendance. The church is for all across all the world, it says from every nation under heaven. And when this occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to another, Look, all of these who speak, look, are, look, are not all these who speak Galileans. And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Because you can't put a parameter on God's word. Parthians and Mates and Elamites and some other names we don't really know. And it says this in verse 12. It says, so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said they are full of new wine. They said they're drunk. They're drunk. They're crazy. You ever had your friends tell you this? You came to Jesus like, you're just weird now. You're speaking like other languages. You're just like, you've got this like peace, this joy, is not like, you're, you're just drunk. They said the same about the apostles on the day of Pentecost. And then here comes this bold proclaimer of the gospel, Peter, in front of a girl says, I don't even know Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know who this is. And Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice. He was yelling. Some of you don't like yelling in church. Too bad. It's biblical. <laughs> Sorry. It's biblical. He raised his voice. The guy that, that cowered in front of a girl. What changed? Jesus says, you love me? and Follow me. And he sends the Holy Spirit. And now Peter stands up. And he raises his voice. And he launches in to arguably the most epic sermon ever preached by a mere mortal. He said to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk. I love that. He's like, first of all, okay, we're not wasted right now. I love that. I'm, ye- I'm yelling and I'm standing. I get it, but I'm not drunk. I love that. So you aren't as impressed with it as I am. But as you suppose, since it is the only third hour of the day, right? Never been to like a NASCAR race. I've seen people drinking at 5 a.m., right? He says, look, it's not, it's not early enough. We're not even there yet. We're not even partying yet. So I'm just on fire, but this is what has been spoken by the prophet Joel. And he launches into the old Testament, right? He says, what about the old Testament? It's all about Jesus. And then go down to verse twenty-two. Says, "Men of Israel, hear these words: Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God, by whom, to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by." We talked about this last week. The determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Peter got it now. He got it now. He's like, "Oh my gosh, Jesus had to die." It had to work out like this. Scripture had to be fulfilled. This is the Peter's like, hey, Jesus, come here, come here, come here, come here. Hey, don't be talking about that whole you're going to die stuff. Don't be, they're going to get, look, I just. Jesus says, get behind me saying, this is how it must go down. Jesus says, this is my gospel, my story. And Peter gets it now and he says, he was determined, he was delivered by the determined purpose. Your translation may say the definite plan. People think humans came up with the cross. It was first and foremost God's idea. That's how I will reconcile you to a holy and perfect God is through the destruction of your sin on my son. Through the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. The grave was created for sinners. He was sinless, therefore it could not hold him. And then he says, For David says concerning him, And check this out, verse 29 says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us today. Look, you can go to any major religious founder's grave today. Name one, I'll show you where it is. Google it for crying out loud. Don't take my word for it, do your homework. You can go to the grave of Krishna. You can go to the grave of Buddha. You can go to the grave of Muhammad. You can go to the grave of Mary Baker Eddy, of Joseph Smith. You can go to all their graves. He even says of the great King David, he's like, you can even go to David's grave. His tomb is with us today. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He foreseen this spoken concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus is what it all comes down to, not your failures. This Jesus. Peter says, despite all of that, he doesn't even bring it up anymore. He says this: this Jesus, this Jesus. God has raised up, of which we were all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. And Peter continues on this massive sermon, calling out, convicting, empowered now by the Holy Spirit, all his failures, he's now empowered by the Holy Spirit. Here's what I want for you tonight. Very simple. Very simple. I want us to pray as we worship. I want you to pray for a personal day of Pentecost. A personal day of Pentecost. Jesus has said, "Do you love me?" And if you're a Christian in the room, you say, "Look, I do." You know, you know everything. Stop asking me. And he meets you on that very personal level. He says, "Do you love me?" You say, "I do." He says, "Then follow me." And tonight, he wants to pour out the Holy Spirit on this place. He say, "The reason you continue to focus on the failures in your faith." It's because you haven't picked up your cross, died to yourself, absorbed truly at the core of what I've done, that you are now clean, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It says the things that they now see and say. So Jesus's mission now lives on in you. Jesus's mission did not end when he ascended. It transferred to us. And Christians act like they don't have a mission in life. Our job via the Holy Spirit is to continue the mission of Jesus. Even amidst the failures in our faith, knowing that Jesus turns and restores failures into strengths and rocks for his church. I've said it before, we'll end on this. You will fail. I will fail. We have failed. We will continue to fail in our faith, but it will not define us. It will not define us. We will fail in our faith, but here's the key. This Jesus will never fail you in your faith. Amen? Let's pray. God, I pray that not not flippantly, But as we go into this time of response, how proper that that we've situated this time at the end of the sermon for a time of response. As you called for a response from Peter to your question three times over, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And follow me. I pray tonight that we would be a fellowship that prays for personal Pentecost. Holy Spirit, that we would yield to you. Though you're here, you're a gentleman, you never force yourself. That we would open ourselves up and say, Holy Spirit, I'm yours. Not for my glory, but to continue the mission the life, ministry, and works of Jesus on earth so that others will hear and see Jesus today. Jesus, I'm mindful that you're seated on a throne right now, listening to every heart, to every thought, to every word. You see every deed, not as an overbearing legalist that says, do you know what you've done? But as a gracious God that says, do you love me? Then follow me. Jesus, we love you. We praise you now, not for our own glory, but for yours alone. Amen.